This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about the technology that affects us all, but few of us understand, presented in a format that can give you some basic understanding and the time it takes to drive to the grocery store. I'm Luke Covey, an independent journalist who's been writing about various technologies ranging from renewable energy to digital security for more than 40 years. I probably know more about it than you do, and if I don't, I will introduce you to those who do. We're going to transition out of looking directly at digital security over the next few weeks, starting with today's interview with Axel Cloth, the CTO of our sponsor, Axiato Corporation. We will still talk about security at the end of the interview, but the first part is a relatively different subject, and the subject is artificial intelligence, or AI. Uh, we've mentioned AI a couple of times in the past few weeks, and I've written more about it in my column at eeweb.com. So I thought I would ask Axel about his views about AI, uh, because they are evolving. Uh, remember a few years ago uh, when the concerns were coming out, Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, uh, lots of uh, technology people were saying that AI was a bad thing and that it's going to take over the world and it's going to cost us jobs and all this stuff. I've never been all that sure that was true. Uh, and... Axel is one of the naysayers whose views have been evolving, and especially in how AI can be implemented into digital security, uh, which will be in their soon-to-be-released technology. Now, uh, in the interview, there are some uh, terms that I thought you might like to know a little bit more about. About midway through, I mentioned a book. Uh, the complete title is Colossus, The Forbin Project. I just make uh, uh, reference to the Foreman Project. It's part of a trilogy by a British author named Dennis Feltham Jones, who goes by uh, D.F. Jones. And it was made into a feature film that was rather scary in 1970. Uh, now, and three quarters through the interview, Axel mentions the term sandbox. And I've heard this for a while, and I think it's been mentioned in a couple of the other uh, interviews. A sandbox is actually a testing environment that isolates code changes and, in this case, potential malware from a computing environment or repository. Uh, so, there's your terms, now you know. Here's Axel. Sure, thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. What has changed your mind about artificial intelligence? I think there were two major issues that made me change my mind on artificial intelligence. First, I thought artificial intelligence is going to be dangerous and artificial intelligence is not going to be able to self-learn. Because if you've got to look at AI today, for the most part, it relies on backpropagation and that basically means human feedback. Mm -hmm. So you know, something tells you A or B and then you make a decision A or B and you tell the system A or B, right? And so that's how it learns. It, it doesn't self-learn yet, but it's going to be able to very soon do that. And in some specialty areas, we already see that. IBM has used uh, Watson to derive the physical uh, equations for the coupled pendulum. The system found it out by itself by just observing coupled penduli. And that's something that uh, a lot of physics students fail to derive even after the fourth semester. So AI is getting to a point where it can self-learn, and that made me think that AI is going to be a giant help to humankind. Because if you look at 
what the initial promise of AI was, I believe that would have been very dangerous because if it doesn't self-learn, it relies on human bias. Mm -hmm. And human bias is in fact the part that makes AI dangerous. Because very simply, while AI and the hardware and the software running AI is unbiased, the bias comes in through people who give feedback and who train the system. So the training data can be biased. And if the training data is biased, then of course the AI system will be biased. And I believe that is incredibly dangerous. However, Okay, let me stop you there for a second because there was a study that came out recently that identified bias in AI mm -hmm. that was not being input by human beings. It was essentially the environment that the AI was deriving data from mm -hmm. uh, turned out to be biased in itself. That's correct. That's correct. Let me give you an example of unbiased learning of a self-learning AI system can and should be. If you have a smart enough AI system observing interactions between humans, I think you will see that if it trains itself long enough, it will be able to derive the rule of reciprocity. It will be able to say, whatever I can do to you is what you can do to me. Therefore, I have to self-restrict ah, what I do okay. to others, right? It's the old, uh, what I do upon you, you do upon me, right? You inflict on me any... The golden rule. Exactly. It, it really is the golden rule because it basically says that if the system is smart enough, it will derive it by itself because it can see the interaction. And it can hopefully derive that if it doesn't follow the golden rule, then it will have to deal with the consequences out of it. And so therefore, it will restrict itself from doing things that are detrimental to other AI systems and to humans, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's why I believe AI, if we equip it with enough smarts and if we give it enough training data in an environment that is unbiased, then we will see it's going to be a great help to humankind, maybe even make humans more peaceful. But only if it is unbiased. And only if it's smart enough, because yeah. if we restrict its smarts, it will never figure out the golden rule. If it doesn't figure out the golden rule, it will have to follow rules that are man-made and therefore biased. Okay. That doesn't sound all that easy. Well, I think if you've got to look at today's AI, it's all based on software systems running on large-scale uh, general purpose processor clusters, and the training data is created with a lot of math, TensorFlow, and uh, through GPUs today. Sort of like what Cisco is doing with Talos. Correct, right? And so, of course, you can try to make it as unbiased as possible by feeding it all data. Right? Okay. Whether you think as a human that data is irrelevant or not. But if you as a human try to restrict what the system sees and how fast it learns and what it learns, then it will become biased. Okay. Right? If you let it learn, and if you let it derive all of the rules by itself without human input, then it will be unbiased. Well, let me ask, this is from a science fiction standpoint. Have you ever read the Forbin Project? No. Okay, Forbin Project was written by, oh, I can't remember his name. Um, he did Jurassic Park also. I see. Uh, um, but it was about two computers. 
one in the Soviet Union, one in the United States, mm -hmm. that had both of them had become self-aware, mm -hmm. okay? And through that process, they learned about the existence of each other, mm -hmm. and then connected, created their own language, and then mm -hmm. decided to destroy the human race. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, from your standpoint, you're saying that that wouldn't happen. Correct, because very simply, the AI system will learn that intelligence, whether human or artificial, is mutually dependent. Okay. Right? And so that means that if the AI system destroys the human race altogether, then who provides all of the infrastructure for the AI system to work hmm. and to learn? So by destroying the human race, they actually destroy themselves. Exactly, because ultimately there won't be any power. So, ju so just for the purpose of self-preservation, self it won't do that. Correct, because an AI system may be as smart as it can be, and you know we can make it really, really smart these days. But the problem is it doesn't support its own existence. Okay. Right? The power has to come from somewhere. Somebody has to put it together. Somebody has to not only create the cabling and all this stuff connecting these machines, but somebody has to make the chips to make them work, and somebody has to maintain it. And at this point in time and for the foreseeable future, even if AI is such that it becomes smarter and the, the average on the AI scale is higher than the human IQ scale, it will still rely on humans. And we hopefully use it to give us guidance on what to do and what not to do instead of us abusing so the AI. So you, you, you see AI as, as being a cooperative technology. Absolutely. Not a dominating technology. Absolutely. Okay. Um, AI is, the, the general public looks at AI as the, the infrastructure to create automation to make human beings obsolete. Do you see, mm -hmm. see that to be a problem? Well, I don't quite see it that way. I mean, if you have a look at the history of industrialization, every single time something got automated, people were starting you know, to fight the system that automated tasks that are repetitive, stupid, dangerous, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, we created more and more high-paying jobs, and we created more jobs in areas that didn't exist before. I just need to look at uh, the gaming industry, right? Mm -hmm. Social gaming is an industry today deep, uh, with hundreds of thousands of employees that didn't exist 30 years ago because very simply there wasn't the time that anybody could do and, and free up enough to, to game, mm -hmm. right? And so while from a, from a pure necessity standpoint, gaming isn't needed, it turns out to be a very big and very profitable industry. It's bigger right? than the movie industry now. Exactly, right? So all of those people that say, hey, if I automate something, I'll lose all the jobs, they have historically all been wrong because we create new jobs by doing new things that humankind have never, has never had, had time to entertain before. Okay. Right? So now Axiato, is specifically targeting data security Correct. for an AI. Correct. Okay. Now I've read, well, I've actually talked to some people about who are trying to do AI to deal with security, mm -hmm. and they're using, well, just 
are the example of Cisco's Talus. Mm -hmm. You're using all of these GPUs and all mm -hmm. of this memory, Correct. plus all of these people, okay, because you're trying to deal with something that's essentially got the same number of synapses as the human brain. Mm -hmm. Correct. And But the thing is, we both know that if you're, and most of this is done in software, and we both know that software is filled with flaws. Correct. So just in that, that area, if the AI is that huge, it's going to be filled with flaws. How are you overcoming that? Well, we took a different approach, and I think I've pointed that out before. That Well, to, me, you, to you and me, but not in, to these people. <laughs> in, the, in the beginning, you always try to do something and prove the concept in software because it's mm -hmm. easier. Yeah. Right? And if something goes wrong, you can always redo things, undo them, or change your approach. And so software has its point and has its place. But it has been proven quite a while ago that, in fact, AI can be used to defend against threats, particularly threats that are new. So okay. zero-day exploits in particular. What, right? what is a zero-day exploit for the a people zero, who don't know? A zero-day exploit is an exploit based on an, a yet unidentified threat. Okay. Right? And so zero-day exploits are always dangerous because they are not yet in any virus list or antivirus list or any list that mm -hmm. there is. Because again, they are zero; they haven't been identified yet, right? And so the problem with zero-day exploits is if they hit and if they are well executed, they're incredibly dangerous. Now, if you use AI to train, and if the AI is local, not in the cloud, then you can make a system such that if something unidentifiable comes in or something that is suspicious. Because this is not a this is not a binary decision. It's a modern firewalls always separate data, incoming data into three categories: safe, definitely a threat, and maybe something that we should have a look into. And so, so there is a gray zone in the maybe this is something we should have a look into, because if it's in a rule set, we already know it's a threat. If it's not in any rule set and it's on a whitelist, we know it's okay. But zero-day exploits pretty much always fall into the gray zone where there's something fishy about it and the system has already detected something, but it doesn't quite know what it is. And so ultimately, even after further investigation, even with all the smarts of Talos and uh, Snort and Spam House, it goes through. And if you've got a local system, that is AI-based and it learns, then it will see what your usual traffic patterns are. Mm -hmm. So let's say you always communicate with company A, B, and C in, in countries A prime, B prime, and C prime, and all of a sudden something comes in that is not any of that. So it's basically not in your whitelist. It's not on your blacklist, it's not a whitelist, and it's not in any threat yet. Then that, of course, warrants closer examination of it. Now, if you only look at the headers and if you only look at you know, where it came from and what UDP, TCP, or ICMP it was, then it certainly doesn't give you enough information on whether you should either drop it or at least tag it. But if you've got an AI system that is self-learning and you see that looking into the payload a little bit more, there's some activity going on or it's a it's a batch file or it's an executable then 
these are the things that can alert a local AI system mm -hmm. to flag it and to make sure it doesn't go through without a thorough examination in a sandbox. And even if it's forwarded, it will have to have a tag that says, this is potentially dangerous, do not execute, do not uh, do not open this attachment. Now is that what your, your technology is gonna be doing? That's what we are aiming at, and we are going to implement all of that in hardware. Okay. So it's not in software, because again, we AI has been well established on how it's done, how it can be done, how it can be done in a very energy efficient manner and how it can be done with very low latency locally. So you don't have to send everything that is suspicious to a global center, right? And of course, once it has been put in a sandbox and is deemed we still don't quite know, of course we would forward it to Talos or Snort or the, all of these spam house and the equivalents of that. But the, the basic idea is to not rely on something, on an infrastructure that's in the cloud, because that would increase the latency of the decision process by quite a bit. Okay, I was reading an article this morning uh, about a, uh, a new piece of malware that's been floating around. It's, it's hit about 1,200 users so far. Yes. And what it does is it puts this malware into a PDF mm -hmm. that you can send by messenger or by email. Correct. Okay. Would your system catch that? Yes. So we all know that PDF started out as a as a format that was read only and display yeah. only. But then, of course, the users and the user base of PDFs demanded that things change towards fillable fields. And so instead of using Word or anything else, people now use PDFs with fillable fields. Now that of course requires that there is some sort of a software that allows you to fill it, fill these fields and then authenticate the, the uh, contents. And the problem with that is that you now need to introduce things that are executables, whether yeah. they are batch files or Java or whatever, there's always something that that points you to something that is an executable. And of course, PDFA still as of today, you can't use to transmit anything that uh, is an executable. But uh, with uh, fillable PDFs, it has returned to being something that could be compromised and then either load an executable on your computer or be the executable itself. The same is actually true for, for pictures. You can hide executables through steganography in a picture and then execute that code out of the out of the steganographically hidden message in the in the picture. Mm -hmm. Right. So anytime you've got something that uses something even that is is read only, but then then sees that right after the read only part that you think and deem secure, there's some other part that is an executable. That is something that an AI system can learn very, very easily because you see something comes that is read only and then something else after that comes that is an executable and the executable refers to some content in the read only file right? okay and so those are patterns that could be detected by an ai system even without external training okay yeah i actually um got a file from a relative yesterday it was a video and i, I clicked on it which I probably shouldn't have, but I trust the guy. Uh, and it started this video 
with an electronic voice. And I immediately said, I'm not sure about this. So I, mm -hmm. I deleted it immediately. Right. And, and ran a malware scan and found nothing. So I mm -hmm. figured that was good. But I, most people don't realize that because the thing is, he also sent it to my wife. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard it playing, I said, Linda, stop that and delete it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was probably a good idea to do that. <laughs> but then again, the newer attack vectors are usually using something, again, that looks like a read-only file, yeah, a picture, a video, a PDF. And then right after that, you will receive some other file that is now an executable that extracts the hidden malware out of that read-only file. Okay. And so, so every single time you see that there is a correlation between one file you received and another file that now pretends to do something beneficial, but in reality it extracts malware out of the read-only file, okay. then that's a very modern attack vector. So let me ask you one more question, and this is for your benefit. One of the things that pisses me off about most uh, security technology, it's only for big corporations. Right. Okay. Is your technology going to be available to the general public? Yes, we're going to make multiple versions of the chip. The one that we're currently designing is intended for companies and for firewalls going into small to medium sized companies. But we will scale down this technology and we will make it available to end users so that we can hit the cost target of standard cable modems with additional security yeah. features. And we can see this coming out within the next 12 months. Something like that. All right. Axel, thank you very much. Uh, folks, this has been Crucial Tech. I hope you've enjoyed your trip to the grocery store, and we will see you later. Thank you very much. This is a production of Footwasher Media. <laughs>